And so when it came time to writing this curiosity paper, I thought, how would we do it? How would we take something that we barely understood in a normative sense and study it for all of those other kids who don't generally have a voice and don't generally get studied? Thanks for joining us today. You're listening to Choose to be Curious, a show all about curiosity. We talk about research and theory, but mostly it's conversations about how curiosity shows up in work and life. I'm your host, Lynn Borton. Welcome. Come. Choose to be curious with us. On a fine day in April 2018, I sat at the back of a lecture hall at American University, listening to a panel of speakers on reimagining education, curiosity, and mental health. It was an interesting panel and included research and insights that were new to me, which is always exciting. A doctoral student from MIT described her research on autism, neurodiversity, and curiosity, her personal effort to understand and address challenges faced by her own son. I was riveted. How do we measure curiosity when the usual metrics don't apply or can't be assessed? Could mathematical models eventually give us the words to describe something poets and philosophers have been struggling to express for centuries? She closed with this. To really understand curiosity, we need new metrics or new ways of thinking or both. That was Christy Johnson, a doctoral student in the Affective Computing Group at MIT Media Lab. She researches how motivation, reinforcement, and psychological regulation affect learning, work she describes as the love child between behavioral and cognitive science and everything else we think of as typically MIT. And today, she's back in the DMV, here to talk with me more about her work. So welcome, Christy. Thank you so much. So... You came to the study of curiosity on this really personal path. Take a moment, if you would, and tell me about that. Oh, wow. Well, I actually came to the study of curiosity uh, without knowing I was looking at curiosity at all. I met Perry Zern at a conference on imagination. Actually, it was a workshop, and I was an invited scholar there at the Imagination Institute at University of Pennsylvania. And I had been studying motivation, and I'd been studying motivation in children with different abilities. So in autism and other special needs, um, I was particularly interested in children with really severe neurodevelopmental disorders. And I had built this device that allowed me to personalize the feedback and personalize the level of the activity so that I could really dig, I could could make it specific for the child and, and dig deep into how they were learning, what were their what was their physiological state when they were learning, how did it change over time. And Perry, I, I presented this ad hoc at this uh, small workshop, and he saw it and immediately, you know, if you know Perry, <laughs> thought of curiosity and, and said, uh, we need to talk more. And then he actually invited me to write this chapter, and I said no. I said no, gosh, four, five, six times maybe. Oh. I said, I, I don't I don't do anything <laughs> with curiosity. I mean, like, I appreciate this. And the more I dug into it, I realized, okay, motiv- motivated behavior, that is indeed often how curiosity is described. This exploratory behavior was something that I'd been interested in. But curiosity seemed like just one more step beyond I was already doing things that were outside the norm. And then finally, I I agreed through a series of events, actually much to my advisor's chagrin. And um, I said, okay, I'll do it. But I still didn't know what I was going to write about. Uh, and interesting. Um, yeah, I, 
In fact, when I gave that talk, I didn't know what I was going to write about. <laughs> I still hadn't written this chapter. And I started researching curiosity work. And over and over, it was just, it was the same as when I'd researched other things in education. It was all about neurotypical kids. Right. And just a kind of a typical way of developing, um, which we know is some statistical norm, right? We know is some Gaussian, like, bell-shaped curve, if you will. And there are some outliers, but we mostly focus on that chunk in the middle. Right. And it makes sense because there's a lot of richness. I mean, we barely know how to, un like, we barely know how to define curiosity. Even we don't. We, we don't know how to define curiosity. It's like one of the first questions you ask other people. It what? Is. How do you define it? Nobody it knows. And, you, and you've heard. I have about 45 definitions at this That's time. right. It's a mess. It's, 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 it's a mess. It's a beautiful, poetic mess, but it's a mess. And so, like, we barely understand it in the sense of just the the normative uh, grouping. And so people don't even, I don't know, they don't have the resources, they don't have the time, it's not studied enough, they don't even think about what's going on when you deal with kids who are a couple standard deviations outside this norm. Right. And to me, personally, that's devastating. And I think that really needs to change. And and as you mentioned in the beginning, I am personally motivated by this. My son was born with a rare genetic disorder on the autism spectrum. So he has autism as well as global developmental delays. He has non-speaking. Um, he has motor challenges and a, a number of different things that make life difficult and different. Yeah. And and I actually changed careers so that I could delve a little bit more into him. I was a physicist. I went to grad school in physics right out of undergrad. And then I took some time off after he was born. And then when I came back, I, I realized, you know, I had this opportunity to say, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to study this. I'm going to study these kids who don't generally get studied. And so when it came time to writing this curiosity paper, I thought, how would we do it? How would we take something that we barely understood in a normative sense and study it for all of those other kids who don't generally have a voice and don't generally get studied? Well, and it's so interesting that you go to this question of sort of what is it that we're even talking about? Because as you know, I look and think a lot about how we describe curiosity, how we define it, how we begin to feel our way around the edges. But I have to say that my latest favorite definition or description is one that you offer with thinking about this as the way in which an individual excels in exploring. And I think that's, one, I think that's quite beautiful and very affirming, but it does some really interesting things in terms of going to a strength-based idea, which means everybody's got a strength, whether it's a normative recognized one or one that's sort of more unusual Everybody has sort of affinities, things that they're attracted to. It assumes this idea that curiosity is kind of multiple and, and pretty amorphous and likely lively, dynamic, evolving, et cetera, and very specific and individualized, which is not what most of the definitions That's right. get at. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so so what would that actually I mean what are the kinds of things that you look at as you think about well you know what is the what's the equation what are the kinds of variables you start to think about It's a great question and again when I when I started writing things down I didn't know where I was going to end up and uh, one of the theses that I started with was that 
I said, let us assume that everyone is equally curious. Mm -hmm. And that is in direct contrast to research that says that some people are more curious. At maybe they're more curious, at, you know, as a trait. Some people are more curious in certain states, right? State right. and trait. But, but there is something about more curious and less curious. And we're kind of trying to figure out what those things are. Right. And I said, let's throw that out. And let's just say everyone's equally curious. And what would that look like? And that forced me to reevaluate the way that we think about and measure curiosity. And it was more about, OK, how could I find the curiosity in people, yeah. especially in yeah. these children? Right. And, and it's like you said, if I take out the idea that they uh, were counting questions, right? I, I'm counting the number of questions they ask or the number of why questions they ask or the number of things that they pick up in a room or how they manipulate an object. If I throw all of these metrics that we're kind of currently testing the waters with, right? we're currently using to make wrap our heads around curiosity and I say, what about their movements, their behaviors, their, their actions, their interactions? are curious, yeah. are, are, are evocative of curiosity. And then how might we measure those and understand them? Uh, that really that really set a different uh, stage. It's a very radical, it's a very radical rethinking of it, where if you put the constant is the total, yeah. not something else, is really interesting. And when you look at it from the neurodiversity lens, I mean, sort of what does that enable us to value or look at that otherwise isn't being looked at? Yeah. So um, great question. The I, One of the podcasts that I listened to was Jackie Gottlieb, um, who uh -huh. is one of the researchers I really enjoyed delving into when I was studying curiosity. And she actually says in your podcast, she says, we love using eye movements because they're so rich. They tell mm -hmm. us so much about what they're thinking, about where they're attending. You know, this kind of intuitive internal information is embedded in, in eye movements. But we don't really understand them. Right. We, we don't know what they mean. We right? think they're rich. We, we <laughs> think they're rich. There's something going on there, but we can't really make sense of it. So we back up and we use words. Yeah. And she does. And, and I, I appreciate that. As a scientist, I get it, right? But as a mother and as a scientist in the domain that I've decided to be in, which is neuroatypical, um, you know, these neurodiverse individuals outside the this norm, that means we don't get to stop and pivot. We, right. we have to keep pursuing the rich information that's in there and think about new ways to measure it. And we have some technology to do so. We have eye tracking glasses and we have physiological uh, wearables and passive measures mm -hmm. and a lot of things that we can do to build that rich data set, but it's going to take time. Mm -hmm. It takes it takes time and effort. And, and most of the time, research doesn't allow that. Funding doesn't allow that. We, the pressures uh, of outside society sure. say, no, 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 no. You needed a result. And this is a long game. You know, this is not going to give you something rich and beautiful right now because it's too messy. And so we have to think about new ways of taking what we have and understanding it better. And we owe it to the children, to ourselves, to, to explore this because there's so many things that we're not thinking about and we're not seeing be because we're so used to 
defaulting back to the easy thing. Well, if, it, if we don't get it, we'll just go back and we'll do the thing. And in no fit, I, I, I want to make it clear that I don't hold it against any scientist who does this. I have myself have done this uh, numerous times where I just say that is just that I don't get it. It's too messy. I'm going to try right. something else. Right. Um, so if, if time were no... If time were no deterrent on this, what kinds of things would you like to look at? Yeah, great. Great questions, all of these. Uh, so I actually think that to, to work through this messiness, we need a system of studies, like a pipeline of mm, studies. Sure. Okay, And in fact, full disclosure, so this thing that Perry first saw that was like, look, you and I both study the similar things, this motivated behavior, this customized learning, this curiosity in toys and tools and education, um, this thing called spring. I actually had to put it on a shelf because as rich and wonderful as it was, I didn't understand it. There were too many variables that were I was getting information that I could understand in the context of one thing, but I was making assumptions and I was I was I felt like I was projecting myself onto the child by by trying to assume what they were. Well, that is that is a challenge, right? I mean, when you add so many variables, that's right. It's hard to know. The, The mix gets pretty muddy and you don't know what you're throwing in. That you're not even accounting for. That's right. So, yeah. so I set it aside and I said, okay, how do I do this better? And I actually, my refuge is always science. Mm-hmm. Um, so I said, how can I make this more scientific? So I sought refuge in science and I went back to saying, how do we understand these internal, say, behaviors and emotions uh, that we know are a part of this equation? We're not very good at understanding those. How could I build better metrics for that? And so I've developed a pipeline where I'm. I actually have patients with deep brain electrodes. Oh, sure. So I'm trying to understand what the neurons in their brain, how they're firing, and how mm. that corresponds to different uh, physiological measures that we can measure passively across their body. Mm. So what your skin conductance says about your sympathetic nervous system, what your heart rate and your heart rate variability say about the interplay between your parasympathetic and your sympathetic nervous system, um, and a variety of other physiological parameters that we can use. But do it I mean, deep brain electrodes, this is incredibly evasive. This is incredibly <laughs> contrived and, like, not real world at all. Um, these people are, like, wired to their bed with, you okay. know, <laughs> like, probes in their head. So so I have that. And then I have ones where they're, the, the electrodes are actually embedded in their skull for, for various medical reasons. But they can move around and walk and they're there for years. And then we're sort of trying to build this step through. Then I have fMRI studies that are looking at a similar mm-hmm. thing. And then I have fMRI studies with autism that are looking at and then I have these naturalistic environment studies where we're using wearable sensors and passive monitoring and video and audio and all of the things that we have now. The, the impact of this is immediate, uh, but it's messy. And I'm trying to kind of bridge all of those things, that all of that understanding together, to look at it through all the different lenses simultaneously. Um, and... That's complicated. I'm still in the middle of it. I make no claims for <laughs> check with me in a few <laughs> years when this go. research comes out. But but that's the goal is to really build a systematic understanding so that kids uh, like my son who can't go in an fMRI scanner or I can't ask them questions, I can still develop a rich understanding of what they're communicating, uh, whether it be curiosity or anything else. You're listening to Choose to be Curious. I'm your host, Lynn Borton, and I'm joined today by Christy Johnson. We're exploring neurodiverse curiosity. So you have 
this great quote that really resonated for me from uh, Werner Heisenberg. What we observe is not nature itself, but nature exposed to our method of questioning. Tell me about that. Yeah, I actually saw this quote. I have to give credit. It was in a different book about using methods of studying animals and oh, how yeah. um, we really have to understand what the the animals are trying to tell us. And I saw the quote, and of course, being a physicist, you know, anything Heisenberg says is pretty <laughs> awesome. And and it really captured what I was trying to get across in this paper, where. I have to question what I'm assuming a child is doing, especially if they're not able to tell me in their own words. They're telling me in other things. Mm -hmm. Um, Behavior is always communication, and actions and movements are also communication, and they are communicating rich ideas, but they're not a blank canvas. And this is really important. I can't just paint whatever I want on a child who's non-speaking or is is moving and acting in different ways. And so I have to develop a method of questioning that is probing nature as well as I can, but then I also have to acknowledge that my method of questioning is what I'm observing. I'm asking the questions and I'm seeking answers about them. And so in these studies, going back to the curiosity thing, you know, we all are equally curious in, in most studies that look at autism, to date even, not just the old ones. In my paper, I referenced one of the earliest studies that I found in Autism and Curiosity from the 60s. And the point was basically like autism, autistic children are, are less than, they're deficient in these things, they take longer, they, they're slower, they don't do X, Y, and Z. And to date, that's often still the case. Mm-hmm. Autism doesn't show this brain region light up. They they show an overactivity here. You're you're looking at how they deviate from the norm. And I get it. Scientifically, again, we like this norm. We're tr- this is what we, we get and we understand is this statistical majority. But I think it's short-sighted. Mm-hmm. And I think it is, you know, if we go in looking at for a deficit – we'll find it. If we're looking for a difference, we'll find it. If we're looking for strengths, we'll also find it. And so in this scenario, I I wanted to go looking for the strengths. I wanted to go looking for the curiosity, and I wanted to understand how we could measure it once we found it, and how we could understand it and probe it and study it further and describe it. And that maybe requires new words, new vocabulary, new tools, new ways of thinking. Nice. I want to go back, actually, and have you kind of describe what falls into the bucket of neurodiversity. Oh, great question. Actually, everything. Um, and it's that's kind of a <laughs> that's problem. That's sort of the point, Yeah, right? it's, 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 it's the one point of the greatest the things and one of the most difficult things. And same with autism. A mm-hmm. lot of autism studies these days have been... Uh, we're, we're blessed that autism is as much more, there's much more awareness around it. Diagnostic numbers have gone up uh, for various reasons. There's more funding. There's more just public interest in it. And people have sought out diagnosis. This, this, these are all good things. Uh, but it it's very confusing because a person who's in college, who is there's no ter- good term for it, but it is often referred to as high functioning. Um, they speak, they can often hold a job, they uh, 
do lots of things, have the exact same diagnosis as my son, who is non-speaking, who is, um, you know, struggles in a lot of different categories, who will likely not have a lot of these opportunities and or, or just options. They have the same diagnosis. Uh-huh. <laughs> they, have, they, they both are autism and uh, they're both neurodiverse. And that's confusing because at the end of the day, we put them all in one bucket often when we're describing what's different in autism and, and not autism. Or we, we even group even just the high-functioning autism altogether. And there's a lot of heterogeneity there. And so the reason I, I added neurodiversity as part of the title is because I think this concept of what a diagnosis means mm. is going to go away. Mm. Um, not all of it, not all of it, but some of it. Yeah. And I think we're going to realize that we're all neurodiverse in different ways. And I hope, I think, and I hope that research will broaden to look at this individual variation as a richer data set than trying to almost average out the variation by grouping people together, um, which is kind of classically how we, right. we look at these studies. Do you have a sense of what your son is curious about? Oh, yeah. Well, okay. So he's in my paper. And, you know, it's best best case subject I can find. He has this beautiful relationship with music mm. that I wish I understood. Like, days I spend thinking about how to connect with him and be with him in his music. I, I've never met a two-year-old who listened to like Mahler and Rachmaninoff and Dvorak mm, and no. with rapt attention. Yeah. Um, he also loves Itsy Bitsy Spider a lot. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, so interests are, are diverse. So, but, but music has this almost communicative thing. Like it, if I play a song that he loves, it is a way to share my expression, you know, my love, my emotion with him. Likewise, he's getting better at being able to pick out certain songs. And even if it's Itsy Bitsy Spider or the Ants Go Marching, which is a big favorite right now, it helps me understand him. And um, he explores things musically. So like... Mm -hmm. And, and I'll share another example in a, in a second. He explores things musically. So everything is musical, uh, hitting like a tabletop, uh, the floor, a gate, slamming a gate over and over. Like, uh, sure. yeah, it it seems very stereotypic, which means just like a repetitive movement. But I think it's musical for uh-huh. him. Uh, uh-huh. He we used to live near an airport and most kids acclimate to the sound of the airplanes going past all the time, but he never did. He always looked up at the sound and uh, not in a frustrated way, but in a like... Attentive way. Yeah, identity way, attentive yeah. way. And there's lots of, like the way we modulate our speech. So we actually say his name with a musical tone. We just go, Felix. <laughs> and he like giggles and laughs when uh-huh. we say it that way. I don't know if that answers the question about him being curious, but another way that I talk about is with reflections. So he sees reflections in things that I have habituated to. So, mm. for example, this floor is mildly glossy. Right. Um, this floor is actually kind of cool. It's got a lot of <laughs> very variation. 
But I don't come in thinking, wow, what a cool floor. And he would. He Uh would come in and say, wow, spotlights, black glossy floor, I'm in. Uh This is amazing. Look at how my hand moves. Look at how this book and these various things change. Likewise, on, on a playground, the high gloss paint on a playground is beautifully reflective in ways that I definitely haven't noticed in the uh-huh. last 20 years. And he goes and finds a playground and will take a hat or a leaf and and move it in the light of uh, the poles yeah. on playgrounds. And he, he's, he's clearly looking at something. Maybe it's just some, you know, benign basal like sensory processing. But I, I don't, again, I don't think I can assume that. I don't want to assume that that's all that there is. I want to presume that there is something deeper and I I want to understand it better. Christy isn't alone in wanting to understand better. Noel Bicknell teaches at the Lab School in Washington, D.C., where he and his colleagues combine multi-sensory and experiential programs to accommodate different learning styles and strengths. I wondered, how would his students describe curiosity? Curiosity means to me, it means um, getting to express myself through the arts and um, getting to um, getting to work with different supplies to uh, to make like a huge art project. Um, I actually think. Um, Certain people are more curious than others. Depends on how they like to use art and to learn. Some benefit on art and other people just benefit on full ride studying. Yeah. For me, it's more art projects. Same here. Like, the piano take apart was one of my favorite parts and blacksmithing. Now what? Uh, keep going. Here, I'll come around like this. Keep going. Grab over here. Now keep going. Tw- keep twisting. Go, go, go. Twist, twist, twist while it's still hot. Um, so the reason we should do like things like the piano take apart and blacksmithing at lab is because it's like good hands-on learning activity because like most schools don't have blacksmithing or they don't just like get massive upright pianos and just dismantle them and take them apart like that piano sculpture over there. So that's why I feel like we should do like those things at lab. Um, it, it also, that, what you just mentioned, makes um, lab a fun place to learn. And, and I'm a person that likes to learn by doing like certain projects. All right, so I want you to uh, hit it over there, right on top, hit it as hard as you can. So the idea is that you're going to kind of hit it like that. Now try to hit it towards me. Yep, keep hitting. Go, 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 go. Yeah, the goal is to keep banging away at this curiosity question. Christie was one of the contributing authors to Curiosity Studies, A New Ecology of Knowledge, published in 2020 and definitely out to give curiosity a good workout. More information and links on my website. You've been listening to Choose to be Curious. I'm your host, Lynn Borton. Thanks for joining us here today. You can find all my shows on my website at choosetobecurious.com. I hope you'll follow me there and on social media at Choose to Be Curious. Special thanks to my guest, Christy Johnson, and to Noel Bicknell and his students at the Lab School. Thanks, too, to Sean Ballack for our theme and other music. I hope you'll join us again next time. Until then, choose to be curious.
Now see if you can bend the whole thing over. Yep, pound it straight down. You're gonna bend that way. Yep, like this. Oh, okay. And that's where the other hook's in. We'll fix up the, uh, we'll straighten it out in a second. Keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going. 